We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, shocker, I know, verse 9. For those of you that are our guests, we're working through the gospel of Matthew together as a congregation, and we're in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verse 9 will be the one verse we are focusing on. I'm going to be all over the Bible to support this passage today, but we'll be in Matthew 5, verse 9, where uh, Jesus says this. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. So we're going to talk about peacemaking today. Uh, I am 47. I have been in some form of ministry for um, 29 years. And I have learned a lot of lessons as a minister in 29 years. Um, Most of that was in student ministry. So a lot of the lessons that I learned apply mostly to that. Things like maybe don't show that movie clip on a Wednesday night sermon um, because some parents may think that you're endorsing said movie. Uh, Do not cut the donut budget ever. It was $6,000 in one of my churches was the donut budget. Every Sunday we fed all of the kids donuts from Krispy Kreme. Do not, do not cut that budget. Um, You should let kids choose their own roommates for camps and retreats if you can, you know, if it's safe to do so. And most of the time it certainly is. Um, So I've learned a lot of lessons. So when I left the student ministry and went to my first senior pastorate in 2008, um, I I was only there a few few Sundays when I got a complaint from a, a, a direct complaint, like face to face. And a kind complaint um, from a deacon about our worship pastor who had been there for a year and a half or so. And he was leading worship from stage like like Weston does. Um, But he was doing it with his shirt untucked. Okay? His shirt was untucked. And this was in the Midlands of South Carolina in 2008. So, you know, I was a little reluctant, you know, to, to bring it up to him. Because it really didn't bother me. There was really nothing traditional at all about the church. It wasn't. It was a larger version of this room. There were basketball goals hanging. It was a steel pre-constructed kind of steel building with a metal roof. Um, it, it, we called it the Cafegematorium because we ate Wednesday night dinner in there. We played upward basketball and soccer in there. And we worshipped in there. Um, so it, in, the worship music was contemporary. I mean, we had drums. He actually played drums sometimes, like Phil Collins leading worship in the back. Um, you know, so everything about the church was super laid back, except for uh, some, of the, some of the folks just had this expectation that there was a suit on you know, for anybody that was leading worship. But the fact that he wasn't wearing a suit was okay, but when he was untucking the shirt, you know, which is now like, I preached in an untucked shirt here a month ago, and Holly told me I was never to do that again, by the way. Um, hey, there we go. See? There we go. Um, so when I, just when I considered all the ramifications of this, it just didn't really bother me that he was, uh, his shirt was untucked. And I was a senior pastor, and I was like, you know, is this worth it? Like, I was, I was trying to deal with this conflict. So when I brought it up to him, he just started laughing because... He wasn't wearing an untucked shirt because he was trying to push the edges of contemporary clothing, you know, in our, in our church. He was concealing his gun. He had a Glock 22 40 caliber with an inside the waistband concealment holster, and he was packing heat in church, okay? So 
so his motives, you know, were just completely different. Like, so, so he switched. He switched to a, I wrote it down. Hold on. He switched to a Ruger LCR 38 caliber special with an ankle holster. So he could hide under his leg instead, right, under his pants, which were loose, you know, suit pants. So, so that, that was, you know, made that, that thing really. But what was really funny is that through, the, through that process, I learned that there were like 30 guns on any given Sunday concealed in my church. So many that the, right down the road where the shooting range was, that one of the employees said, brother, you have the safest church in town. Because of all the peacemakers. <laughs> all the way around. Yes, sir. You're welcome. <laughs> right? So you would think, right, with all those guns, that it would just be a really, like, everybody would get along, you know? Because what if you don't? <laughs> there, could be, there could be consequences. But, but it was a church, ironically, and churches are famous for their division and their arguments, not their peace, right? We're famous for this. So I wasn't, I mean, I was, this was super early on. I, I wasn't there three or four or five weeks, and I got a letter in the mail, long, two-page, typed, 12-point font letter from a member who was actually a member of the search team that brought me. And the letter detailed all the reasons why three other ministers on staff should be fired, and specific reasons. So they weren't broad, like it was, like it was, this guy did this, this lady did this, this guy did this, and you need to get rid of them. Interesting those things ever came up in the search process, but they were narrow and there in my hand. So I made copies of the letter, one for each staff member that was accused, and I walked into my office, I said, into their office, I said, okay, let me, let me, let's talk about this. So they read the letter, and I read the letter, and we went point by point, and it was like comical. You know, some of it was, you know, the, the way things were being construed, and when you try and get the whole story, you could just tell that, this person's motives weren't exactly pure, right? So I met individually with all the staff members, went through their version of the events, and each of them said, well, I'll be glad to sit down with you and this person and just kind of walk through because it really is just kind of crazy that this is even coming up. And so I took all my notes back and I called the person who wrote the letter and they were not happy that I called them to talk about this. It was not a pleasant conversation. They had absolutely no interest in resolving the issue. They didn't want to live in community with their staff. The purpose in writing was to equip me with the truth so that I could do that person's bidding and get rid of these staff members that they just didn't care for. And so when I tried to actually deal with it in principle, there was aggression you know, there was defensiveness because I confronted them and they got really defensive. They were evasive when I tried to actually make steps toward bringing them together and reconcile. And they were super passive for like six or eight weeks. They just acted like nothing had ever happened in the conversation and all of a sudden they were gone. Just didn't even see them in the church anymore. Um, does that sound familiar? Like, that story connect, like have you heard or maybe experienced or maybe lived one of those, you know, those stories where there's a conflict and you just can't bring any peace to the relationship? Um, I, this is such an important issue. It's so relevant, this need to have biblical principles lead us in the way that we resolve conflict and work out differences in our relationships. So here we are in the Beatitudes, and, and Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, meaning those, and, and, and those who are poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. A core value, 
a requirement for being in the kingdom of God is to be empty of yourself um, so that you can be filled with him and his values. So you can't bring your strengths and your pride and any of that to the party and be a part of the kingdom of God. You have to be empty of yourself. And if you will be empty of yourself, you will be aware of the, of the sin that you have in your life and the holiness of God. So you will mourn that. Blessed are those who mourn. And you'll be broken for it. And, uh, and yet you will also at the same time have this sense of gratitude and contentment in the gospel for God who has forgiven you and provided a way for you to be right with him. Blessed are those who are humble. When you are empty of yourself and you mourn the brokenness in this world, you are not a prideful, cocky person. You are a humble person who is meek and willing to, to, to serve and not think of yourself first, but think of yourself last and think more of Jesus. This, this, that's, that is the defining quality or characteristic or trait of a Christian, this humility. Um, and then Jesus moves into, um, in the Beatitudes, uh, the way in which our, the, if you're, the values of the kingdom of God, how they look like in terms of us living in the kingdom of this world. Number one, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want what is true about Jesus to be true in this world. We want to see um, the truth of the gospel impact and have power and influence in making this world more like the one he created and more like the one that's coming. Be one, we're blessed are those who are merciful. Those who are part of the kingdom of God are merciful people. They, they look upon the, the, the needs and the brokenness in this world and they want to relieve those Problems relieve those pressures to the best of their ability. They want to bring mercy to bear because they, they want they don't want people to experience what they're what they absolutely what what, what their uh, what their lives may what, they want them to experience the pain associated with what their circumstances may bring them. We want to relieve that pain. We want to relieve that problem. That's mercy. So we have ministries of compassion we bring to this world. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Uh, there is a, there is an expectation. We we look we we did a biblical run through of what it means to, um, but the state of the heart, of the, of the human heart, and who we are as people. And it's you know it's sick, it's it's deceitful, and so we we don't possess a pure heart. But God, once we once we exchange our passport for the kingdom of this world and become citizens of the kingdom of heaven, He begins to give us a new. Heart, and we want to see that purity. We want to see that holiness at work in our own lives. We want to see that at work through us in this world. And then, then there's this one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. A core quality, a core characteristic of what it means to be a Christian is that we are peacemaking people. Okay? So we're going to go all the way through the Bible on this uh, today. I want us to, to get a firm grasp on this because it, it is core to who we are as Christians and as a church. It's, um, and and I, I, want to, I want to show you that. So here's what we're going to do. Number one, we're going to go, th- peacemaking implies the presence of conflict. So we're going to get a biblical understanding of conflict. Okay. Um, and then... We're going to analyze some of the ways that the, the kingdom of this world responds to conflict and how the kingdom of God people are supposed to respond to conflict as peacemakers, how those are different. And then, we'll, then we're going to see 
what the relationship is between those of us who are his peacemakers and to be called to be called a son of God. A son of God. Okay? That's huge. So from scripture, what do we learn about conflict? Okay? Um, conflict, first thing, conflict is about broken relationships. A conflict is a broken relationship. You go back to Genesis and the garden. Um, that, that moment before the fall is essentially described um, as perfect relationships, right? So God speaks all of creation to being. He forms man with his breath in his hands. We see this really beautiful picture of relational harmony between God and man and all the rest of creation. And that community is destroyed when Adam and Eve seek equality rather than community. They sought equality with God rather than community with God. So that's, that's the world's first conflict is a broken relationship over a desire for equality, not community. Okay? So at its core, conflict is a broken relationship. That's the first thing we learn from the Bible. The second thing we learn from the Bible is that it's a spiritual issue. Okay? Especially in the church. Paul says, Ephesians 6, 11-12, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and cosmic powers and over the present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there's a, there's a spiritual component to conflict, especially to conflict in the church. But it's not just Satan's fault. It's our own heart's fault too. We can't look at conflict and say, Satan is trying to divide us. What may, that may be true, but that's not the only reason. It could be you are trying to divide us. It could be I am trying to divide us. James 4, what causes quarrels and bites among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. There's no mention of Satan there, is there? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covenant and cannot obtain, so you fight. You do not have because you don't ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So you see, you see what the Bible is saying, just holistically, that conflict is about broken relationships and it's spiritual in nature, both in a supernatural kind of way and in a deceitful heart, broken heart kind of way. Okay? The third thing that the Bible reveals about conflict is that it is inevitable. We're not going to get around this because we're broken spiritually and relationally. So it's inevitable. Um, Galatians 5.17, Paul writing to the Galatians, which is a very in-your-face kind of letter. For the desires of the flesh, says Paul, are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Okay? So while we, we can be disheartened or we can be disappointed when their conflict does come in the church, we aren't shocked. Okay? We're not surprised. Whenever one of my children does something and I'm just like, like surprised that it went there, you know? 
or that I do something and I'm surprised that I, that I went there. You know, one of the things that my, my spouse, spouse will say to me, she will say, you know, that sounds consistent with who they are or what they do. Like, we, we can't be shocked. We can't be surprised when we are relationally broken and spiritually broken people if the conflict is not optional. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. Okay? I'm going to push that even farther because the Bible does. It's not just inevitable. It is necessary. Functional. Um, it is Conflict is a means, a means by which God achieves His redemptive purposes. So you look at Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church. That, that relationship was rife with conflict. In large part because the church in Corinth was rife with conflict within itself. And Paul, you read through that letter, he saw that some of the conflict had purpose. Okay? 1 Corinthians 11, 18-19, he wrote, I hear that when you are coming together as a church, that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, that those who are approved will be recognized among you. In other words, he said, I I see that the conflict that you're in, that the Lord is at work necessarily through it, that this conflict has a necessary intentional purpose because it is going to be the means by which the truth can be known for everybody in the church. We're going to let you guys duke it out so we can know what's real. And we can know what we're all supposed to be doing. That's what Paul is saying. Okay? So it's relational. It is spiritual. It is inevitable. It is necessary. I could not come up with an able at the end. And it is an opportunity. That's what this means. This means it's an opportunity. An opportunity for peace. It's an opportunity for the gospel. It's an opportunity for Jesus to be made much of. Okay? It's an opportunity. Joseph, in conflict with his brothers, Genesis 50. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. But God meant it for good. Psalm 119, 71. David, the psalmist writes, It is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I might learn your statutes. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. Paul says, For this light, slight, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The suffering, the conflict, the disagreements, all opportunity for God to make himself known as great and good, for the gospel to be demonstrated as true. So if that's the truth about conflict, and it is, then the last thing we want to do is not deal with it in a biblical way. We want to deal with it in a biblical way because that's the way that we're going to show that Jesus is amazing. We're not going to show Jesus amazing in our conflict if we literally sweep it under the rug and act like it's not there and so on. Which leads me to, to, to bring out for you all the ways that we would rather keep peace than make peace. If only Jesus would have said, blessed are the peacekeepers, for they will be called sons of God. We would be awesome at that. Okay? Because we, we love to keep the peace. We do not like to make peace. It's way easier to keep the peace on the front end. Okay. 
We're short-sighted about this. And we have really good tactics of doing this, right? So passivity, all-time favorite, okay? Passive responses to conflict, right? So when you respond passively to conflict, you, you feel, because you, you saw in your face, it's in your body language, okay? You feel really passionately about the conflict, right? You have a great emotion in it, but you're not going to talk about it. You're going to keep it to yourself. And, and what's going on there is you, you, you know, you, you, well, let me say, let me, let me reword this. You are operating under the assumption that all conflict is wrong and should be endured quietly in the name of love and mercy. Okay? The problem is that's an unbiblical assumption about conflict. It's not all conflict is not wrong and therefore should just be swept under the rug passively. Okay? So when you, when you go into that tactic, you become much more interested in keeping people from being hurt than you are about reconciling all parties to God's truth. Okay? I, did I tell you three weeks ago that I was going to be all in your biscuits this morning, right? On the Peacemaker Sermon? I just, I, I'm just, here we are, all right? Passivity is just lying, it's deceit, okay? It's super selfish. It's really deceitful form of selfishness because you tell yourself that you're holding it in because you want to protect everybody else. But what's really going on is that you're passive because you don't really like to deal with the conflict. So you just kind of are passive about it. Okay. We, we, we could all raise our hands on all of these, so I'm not going to ask for any volunteers. Anybody want to tell a story about when you were passive-aggressive? Anybody? That's a joke. Come on, y'all can't. Come on now. All right. It's hitting a little too close to home to be funny, okay? Evasive, right? Is something wrong? No. Dodge that one, right? When something really is, right? And if you are forced to answer, you'll divert the real issue to something of secondary or minor importance. That's an evasive action, an evasive maneuver. It's a lie, right? So you're like a really good defense attorney who's got a strong, you know, you're facing a strong witness against your client, and so you don't question the facts. You know, you question their credibility. So imagine yourself, you're an attorney, and you've got a, a, a client, a, a person there that you're, you're testifying, and they've got really good facts, really good truth. They're a really strong eyewitness to the case, and there's really nothing you can argue with them about with regard to the facts of the case. So instead of going after the facts of the case and their memory of them, you just attack their character and you attack their credibility to evade from the real issue. Not that I've ever done that in an argument. Uh, maybe you're defensive. Maybe you get defensive. Um, so imagine yourself in a conflict. And you, the, in, the, in the discussion, and I'm sure it's a very calm discussion, you move to justify your actions or your thoughts or, 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 and defend yourselves and the way that you do that is you minimize any uh, of your own shortcomings. Whatever shortcomings I have, they pale in comparison to that person's shortcomings. I love this tactic. <laughs> it's terrible. So 
when you're in that moment, what you think is that the conflict is only about proving who is right and who is wrong. So you work vehemently in the conversation to defend your authority and your position at any cost, usually at the cost of the person you're arguing with, usually at the cost of that relationship. You'd rather be right than known. You'd rather be right than loved. Okay? You'd rather have power rather than community. This is, look, this is my house, man. Like, this is chewing me up. So you redefine peace in that moment. When you get defensive, you redefine peace to mean I win. And it doesn't matter what it costs. We have peace because I win. Or maybe you get really aggressive. Okay? My way or the highway. There's a conflict. Boom. Now there's not. Those are broken heart ways of keeping peace instead of making peace. Passivity, evasiveness, defensiveness, aggression. And peace is never made. It's just, it's just kept. Community is not restored. There's just there's a facade. You know what? It, it's, it's a bless your heart community. Like there's a facade of kindness. There's a facade of community. But underneath, it's like the firm, you know, <laughs> the, the book and the movie. It's just, of course, I'm not supposed to mention movies. I just, so well, I forgot that one. Just a facade. So Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Very different. Okay? A peacekeeper is primarily interested in conservation while a peacemaker is primarily interested in transformation. A peacekeeper is trying to conserve what little sanity we have in this relationship. A peacemaker is trying to transform and elevate the relationship into one that makes much of Jesus. I'll be glad to say that again. A peacekeeper is interested in conservation. A peacemaker is interested in transformation. A peacekeeper says, uh-oh, we have a conflict. Let's try and keep what little peace we have. A peacemaker says, uh-oh, we have a conflict. Let's get to the truth so we can make much of Jesus and grow together. See the difference? Okay. So if you're going after peacemaking, you can't be defensive or evasive or aggressive or authoritative or whatever. I don't even remember. Yeah, Passive. You can't do that. Those methods don't work. They don't get you to make peace. They get you to keep and conserve. They don't get to transformation. So you have to have a... So what do you do? You reconcile. Peacemaking is the work of reconciliation. It is like conducting a choir to find and fine-tune its harmony. Okay, That's for you, Weston. It's a di- whether there's a disagreement between believers in a congregation or if it's a hostile relationship with a personal enemy, the Christian's endeavor is to reconcile. It is to make peace. Now, super important. You are not always going to be successful. In fact, you may fail more often than not. Okay? But Jesus did not say, blessed are the peace achievers. Okay? He said, blessed are the peacemakers. 
Paul puts it this way in Romans 12, 8. He says, if it's possible, I mean, you talk about Romans 1 through 11, theology coming out of a fire, fire, not a hose, fire hydrant, thank you. Fire, 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 fire. And then he gets to chapter 12 and starts laying it down. What, it, what does this mean? And he says, as possible, as far as it depends on you, li- as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. What's he implying there? He's implying that there are going to be times that achieving peace is not possible, perhaps even because you are standing for biblical truth and that is something that the other person is just not going to reconcile with. Okay. But it doesn't mean that you stop making peace. You keep making, making, not necessarily achieving or achieving. The work of Christian life is constant reconciliation and love of enemy. It is the making of peace. That is what citizens of the kingdom of God do, is what we do. Just because you can't achieve it doesn't mean that you stop making it. Blessed are the peacemakers. It is the work of reconciliation. Um, when, when we moved to South Carolina, oh, Trey and John, it was 08. You guys were little, four and two. And in 2000, we'd already kind of started the adoption process internationally that failed. And so in 2009, yeah, somewhere in there. We took in two foster care, two girls in foster care. Our license was active at noon, and at 3, we got a phone call. Just for the county, in Lexington County. We got these two girls, JoJo and Lulu, Jocelyn and Linda, JoJo and Lulu. And we had them for about 15 or 16 months. Now, we, for the first six months we had them, they never saw their mom. They didn't have a relationship with their dad. They were on the run from their dad. It was a really terrible, really terrible situation. So they didn't see their mom for six, six months. And they, I mean, you talk about not seeing your mom for six months when you're 19 months old and three. You just, you separate and you basically enter into a whole new family over that time, especially at that age. Well, then, you know, the goal of foster care is to reunite children with their parents. And the parents are healthy enough to actually take care of their children, which we strongly support. So we changed, when mom, mom started getting her act together and taking the classes, and it was time to reintroduce the girls back to their mother, okay? Which means Holly and I took on a whole new role. We weren't potential parents. We were reconcilers. And so for the next six to nine months, we entered into Hades because... We were reintroducing the children back to a relationship with their mother for an hour, maybe two, two or three days a week, and then removing them from her and taking them back into our home and the chaos of moving in the heart of a child into those things was just, you know. And so the temptation is to do what? Is to be super angry and very frustrated and take it all out on the mother who put the child in this position to begin with, Right? But that's, that's not gospel ministry. That's not peacemaking. That would have been peacekeeping. Okay? T- 
tore us up. I, I still remember us, we, when, we, when, we left, when we left the girls with their mother permanently, the county wasn't even there. We met them in the parking lot of a grocery store. We, met, we, we took the girls, and, and the mom was there, and, we were tr- and, and Holly took the girls over there and prayed over them, and, and off they got, and we had never heard from them again. It's, it was a ministry of trying to make peace between us, between the girls and the girls with their mom, rather than just keep it through some sort of force of law, some sort of aggression is what it would have been, right? That's the work of the gospel. It, it, there's truth, and you're, and you're trying to make peace, you're trying to reconcile, okay? Now, what's so great about being a peacemaker? Why am I blessed to be a peacemaker? Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Why are they blessed? For they will be called sons of God. Peacemakers is a name. Sons of God is a name. You see what Jesus has done? He has made sons of God and peacemaker synonyms. Okay? Peacemaking is a core value of the kingdom of God to the extent that it is effectively our nickname as Christians. Instead of calling us little Christ, you could just call us peacemakers. And it should carry the same weight. Because it's so evidenced in the way that we relate to one another. Is it a Kleenex or is it a facial tissue? It's a Kleenex. We actually call it by the name, right? Is it an Airbnb or is it a short-term vacation rental? It's an Airbnb, right? Do you get an Uber or do you get a rideshare? Nobody says rideshare. You get, a, you get an Uber. But they're the same thing, right? Are you a peacemaker or are you a son of God? They're synonyms. It's so core to the values of the kingdom of God to be about conflict in this way that we, it should literally be our name. Peacemaker. It's a blessing to be a peacemaker because it's the proof for you and for this world, that we are who we say we are. It is the evidence. And, and, and it's a way, like mercy is a way, of seeing the kingdom of God come to bear on this world. You want to see that the kingdom of God is real? Be merciful. You want to see that this kingdom of God is real? Pursue purity. If you want to see that this kingdom of God is real, handle conflict this way, not the way of the world, and see its fruit. It's the proof that you are who you say that you are. In the same way that you would commit acts of mercy, not necessarily for the person you're trying to relieve, but so that you can know that you have received mercy, go about bringing resolution to conflict in this biblical way so that you can know you are saved and you are right with God. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Peacemaking is evidence that who Jesus is and what he has done is real. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, everything is from God. Everything is from God who has reconciled, peace made, us to himself. How? Through Christ. And he has given us the ministry of of reconciliation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, 
And he has committed that message of reconciliation to us. What is Paul saying? He's saying that when we do the work of peacemaking, we are pointing to the greatest act of peacemaking. When you and I work with truth and in love to understand what is right and true in our conflicts, we are demonstrating to the world and to each other that God did the true and right thing in reconciling us to himself through Jesus. We're going to take communion here in a little bit if I would ever stop preaching. And we're going to remember that Jesus did this, that he reconciled, that he made peace between... He achieved peace. He made it and achieved it between God and those who would believe and trust. When we do the work of peacemaking, we are pointing to the greatest act of peacemaking. Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through Jesus. You can't preach reconciliation to God through Christ and then whenever there's conflict not appeal to the gospel principles to resolve it. That's called hypocrisy. You need different tools to demonstrate gospel centrality in your conflict resolution. You need to make peace. You need to lead to transformation, not conservation. Because God has made peace with you. Let's bring that to bear in our conflict in this world. Okay. Father, we are grateful for the peace that you have made with us through your son, Jesus Christ. And we want to respond in faith today, believing in the great work of reconciliation, that we are justified uh, by faith. And that by that, by that uh, giving our lives to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus... You look on him and you pardon us. You achieved peace between yourself and man through that great work. And if that's true, our methods and our practices of uh, dealing with conflict among ourselves and with our enemies, it just it changes. We, we can't go about the comfortable ways of this world. We need to be open and honest, and we need to have see the opportunity to show the gospel at work in our relationships, in our conflicts. So help us do it, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.